Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The new year stumbles out of the gate, but the markets take it in stride. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Riots broke out on Capitol Hill this week as a mob stormed the Capitol to disrupt the counting of the Electoral College votes, driving the House and the Senate from their respective chambers and delaying the proceedings. It was history being made and not in a good way, as political scientist Barbara Ann Perry of the University of Virginia's Miller Center explained. If you take exactly what happened, and that is a mobocracy attempting to uh, foment a coup and break into the precincts of power, into the very houses of Congress, into their chambers, their inner sanctum, uh, nothing like that has happened in this kind of context when the Senate and the House were attempting to engage in their constitutional and statutory ministerial duties to certify the Electoral College winner of the 2020 election. Now, you know, people will go all the way back to 1814 and, you know, during the War of 1812, a foreign power, the British, came and invaded Washington and they burned the Capitol and they burned the White House as James Madison and Dolly Madison had to run for their lives uh, from the executive mansion. But in, in this context, in a word, no, nothing like that has ever happened in our history. So, so I'll confess, I, I, I was not around in 1814, but I was around <laughs> as a fairly young man uh, in the 1960s uh, when we did have marches, very large marches across the country, particularly in Washington. I remember Richard Nixon holed up in the White House. Is there some parallel with that? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, and we haven't even mentioned 1860, 1861, when in response to a presidential election that is of Lincoln, uh, you had to begin with seven states secede from the Union and a total of 11 to form a whole wholly new nation within the United States, the Confederacy. So, yes, we've had that in 1968. I do, I do as well remember it as a young person. Uh, awful, awful. Think of Chicago. Uh, think of the Democratic Convention that year. Think of the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. So our, our leaders being gunned down. Uh, and yes, the, the uprisings, the, the race riots, the student uprisings. Uh, so it's not as though we've never been through this. But when I'm asked about context, again, the Senate and the House attempting to do their constitutional statutory duties in the role of, of presidential election. No, we've never had that. And we've never had a mob um, again, short of the British, a foreign invader, uh, break into the Congress uh, and attempt to take, in effect, take power. Before the riots, we had Donald Trump Jr., the son of the president, basically speaking to that crowd on the ellipse and saying, this isn't the Republican Party at all. This is what he said in part. The people who did nothing to stop this deal. This gathering should send a message to them. This isn't their Republican Party anymore. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. So, Barbara, among so many extraordinary things, I found that extraordinary uh, with the son of the president saying this is not the Republican Party. This is Donald Trump's party. Do we have parallels to that? I mean, maybe bull moose under Teddy Roosevelt or something? Sure. We've had these splinter groups. Uh, but particularly 1912, where you have the former president, Teddy Roosevelt, who decides he wants to run again and, and can constitutionally at that point, wants to run again. Uh, he is his protege, William Howard Taft, is the incumbent president. But Teddy doesn't like the way he's going because it, he's not progressive enough. So he splits his own party into forms the Bull Moose Party, the third party, the progressive party, uh, and therefore causes Democrat Woodrow Wilson to win the 1912 election. So careful when you split off from your party. Third parties or splinter parties uh, tend not to work very well. Uh, they haven't since the GOP was formed back in the, uh, the late 1850s because of slavery. Um, so it's not as though we haven't had split parties. We're just used to our parties becoming, as they have in this time of polarization, so monolithic. But think of the New Deal period up through the 1970s when all the Democratic Southerners became Republicans. So you had FDR, Truman, Kennedy, Johnson having to deal with a split party of segregationist white Southern uh, suprem white supremacists in the South who had all the power in Congress, and then people like Hubert Humphrey, you know, Midwestern, uh, Northeastern liberals, or even the Republicans as recently as 1964, you know, were split between the Nelson Rockefeller liberals and the Ronald Reagan on the scene coming along, very Goldwater conservatives. And even George H.W. Bush faced this. You know, he, he sort of lost the Reagan wing of the party. And then it became really the Reagan Republican Party until it became now the Trump Party. So it remains to be seen. Do they splinter off? Uh, do they try to find any kind of common ground? Let's talk about the 25th Amendment, that provision in the Constitution that allows in one section for the vice president with, as I understand it, the majority of the cabinet, basically certified the president pro tempore up in the House, that the president's not competent. Is there any realistic prospect of this? Has this ever been considered, much less used before? 
Well, certainly not considered for uh, a president uh, who's been being viewed as, as having, uh, as I, if I can put it in a pedestrian way, lost his marbles. Closest we could get to that, of course, would be Richard Nixon, who was uh, seemingly becoming mentally unhinged towards the end and prior to his resignation. But the process of impeachment was so underway that you had members of his own party, leaders of his own party, led by Barry Goldwater, going down to the White House to say, after the Supreme Court's decision in the Watergate tapes case, you know, Mr. President, if you do not resign, you will be impeached and you will be convicted and you don't even have our votes, members of your own party. So, no, we haven't had to consider it really for physical or mental incapacity on the part of the president since that became part of the Constitution in the mid-1960s. That was Barbara Ann Perry of UVA's Miller Center. Coming up, the historic Senate runoff elections in Georgia and what John Hope Bryant says they could mean for small business as the driver for economic justice. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Control of the Senate hung in the balance this week, and to the surprise of many, the two Democratic challengers won both of the runoff elections, giving President-elect Biden a razor-thin margin in the Senate and sending the first black senator to Washington from Georgia. But John Hope Bryant, founder of Operation Hope, says that when it comes to civil rights, the key is economic opportunity. I think that we felt massively disrespected by our some of our national leadership in the last four years, um, really felt uh, dehumanized. And given the history of this country, where uh, one could argue the largest reverse transfer of wealth happened with African-Americans building the core of this country's wealth in the uh, 16, 17, 1800s with slavery and free labor, uh, and we couldn't create capital because we were capital. Uh, we thought that was a, uh, a particular disrespect, um, the, the lack of empathy, of understanding uh, the role that we played and, uh, and the role of public officials to care after the least of these God's children, which, by the way, often become the primary assets. You know, Sam Walton had a high school education, as you know, David, but is now the resp- responsible for the largest retailer in the world. That's what happens when you invest at the bottom of the pyramid. So I think that you had people turn out in mass because they felt uh, <laughs> they were given, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, I, I can't say on your program, but they were given 
a massive disrespect uh, um, uh, by by some of our elected officials. And we wanted to send a message. And I think we've done that brilliantly. Something else is very interesting, David. Um, The place where in the 60s you had Dr. King leading a movement of social justice, uh, which was backed by primarily uh, African-Americans and Jewish brothers and sisters, now has a U.S. senator from that same place. That's an African American and one of our Jewish brothers, um, and it was a coalition of the willing. It, yes, blacks were decisive in the presidential election and this one, but we couldn't have done it alone. You have really all races who said, "Knock it off, America! It's time to get back to business, and uh, let's make America normal again." But let's rebuild her uh, with the best of her bones, which all, which include all of her economic levers. You make a very important point, but there's a distinction there. Making America normal again, in some respects, will not do it. As you point out, there's 400 years now of basically building America on the backs of people who were not equally treated, who did not have the ability to earn the money and amass the capital. What realistically can the black community expect from a President Biden when he takes over to start to change that phenomenon? Well, uh, and by the way, it's interesting uh, that... Reverend Warnock, who had Operation Hope's award in the background when you did his acceptance speech, we, we noted that we, we he actually asked me to put a Hope Inside location at Ebenezer Church, Dr. King's church, uh, about eight years ago. Uh, and so this concept of civil rights and civil rights, that the real color is green, and that we need to pre- provide social justice through economic empowerment, through home ownership and small business creation, wealth creation, is something not foreign to Reverend Warnock. And you'll see, I think you'll start to see a moderation of him, a moderating leadership from him that I think most people will appreciate. I think likewise, and I've been contacted by the Biden administration transition team, you're going to see, I think, a focus on small business, which is the right place to start. Uh, That's where most wealth creation from my white counterparts came from. And and there's almost, there's almost, uh, was it $98 trillion, I believe is the number uh, of my white counterparts. Uh, They own 90% of all equities and all wealth in this country. That comes a lot from small business. That's where jobs come from. 53% of all jobs in this country are employers with 50 employees or less. Uh, conversely, half of black businesses were sidelined in, in the coronavirus, 41%. And 96% of all black businesses, as you know, David, don't have an employee. I'm going to repeat that. 96% of all black businesses in this country are sole proprietorships with no employees. So how do you create wealth? How do you create jobs when you don't have uh, the mechanism to do so? So, so, so I think you're going to see a massive focus on not just uh, some raw stimulus. That's not enough. That, that, that is actually can be negative if that's all you do. You have to turn the stimulus into an investment. You're going to see that in, I think, small business. And I think you're going to see it in massive internship programs. I'm talking about millions of internships, not hundreds of thousands. So, so there, there you're talking about private sector as well as public sector. And we have seen some big private companies start to do some of that investment, particularly in the financial services area, which you know so terribly well. Yeah. When, you know, once again, it was the private sector, David, in the 1960s that led the effort to desegregate the South because it was bad for business. Very few people know this, but it was not the government that integrated the South. The government, the governor was set standing in the door saying over my dead body, oftentimes sounding like what some of our federal leaderships are sounding like today. It was the private sector who said, knock it off. This is bad for business. Whether you're black or white, we need some more green. Let's take down the whites only signs from the soda shops 
the department stores, et cetera, let's integrate these places where blacks are coming in to buy. It was the private sector. Once again, David, you have the private sector that's made a $300 billion investment in 2020 alone on social uh, justice to economic empowerment. Companies like uh, Shopify, where I partnered with to create a million black businesses, uh, companies like J.P. Morgan, uh, Wells Fargo, uh, uh, oh my God, uh, Meta, was it uh, PayPal? All these companies, uh, Twitter, et cetera, who've stepped up uh, into this gap. I think the private sector, you know, 90% of all jobs, David, as you know, come from the private sector. Most legitimate wealth comes from the private sector. We The fortune here is at the bottom of this pyramid and the private sector understands they can't get there without black and brown customers, uh, diverse com- companies and diverse uh, geographies win. That is a, a fact. I like math because it does not have an opinion. Uh, that is that, that is just a winning formula, and the government needs to follow that lead. So the government should be the stimulus for the private sector. I'm talking about massive internships, David. Right. Massive. I'm talking about millions of young people who know that they can. Uh, the ladder is repaired, including my white right. brothers and sisters, by the way, to get that opportunity right. for the future. Does this make the Small Business Administration administrator a critical position in the Biden administration? I do believe it does. It's been a titular member of the cabinet in the past, but I believe now uh, small business has proven in the pandemic to be uh, what what you and I have always known, the the base bone, the backbone of this economy and of jobs. And I think that's going to get special recognition uh, in the next couple of years, I think that people are going to be pleasantly surprised. I think you're seeing it in the in the way the, the markets are, are responding. You're seeing I had a billionaire friend of mine text me and say, well, I guess my taxes are going up for good reason. I mean, so <laughs> it, he, he was he was like, look, I don't mind it if, if they go they go up. If we're talking about social justice through economic empowerment and uplift and smart, smart taxation, where all boats rise. You're going to have more yeah. GDP, more so- economic opportunity. That was John Hope Bryant, founder, chairman, and CEO of Operation Hope. Coming up, the Federal Reserve stays on course, but Megan Green of Harvard explains why that doesn't mean they are optimistic about the economy. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week, we got to see the minutes of the Federal Reserve's meetings at the end of last year, and FOMC members, for the most part, seem pretty happy with where they are. Though Megan Green of Harvard's Kennedy School did go through the risks the Fed may be facing in 2021. This wasn't the most earth-shattering Fed minutes, but there were a few things in there. For starters, they changed their language around uh, continuing bond purchases. So instead of saying they'll continue for coming months, they said they'd continue until they'd reached sufficient progress on hitting their targets. Um, but they were also pretty careful to say that those targets wouldn't be quantitative, they'd be qualitative. So if that feels kind of frustrating and vague, it, it, it is, and it's intentionally so. Um, there was widespread expectations in early December among market participants that the Fed might actually try to extend the, the duration on their bond purchases to keep the long end of the yield curve down, and there was very little appetite for that uh, in the Fed minutes. Uh, that, of course, was before the 10-year yield started creeping up uh, in recent days, so that, that might have changed already since mid-December when these Fed minutes um, were recorded. 
And then finally, the Fed talked a little bit about their outlook and, you know, in line with expectations, they're pretty pessimistic about the upcoming months. It's going to be a hard winter, but they're hoping that a vaccine will result in a release of pent-up demand and a recovery in the second half of this year. So they were much more optimistic, but there are so many risks around that view. I think that's worth keeping in mind. Well, it's interesting. As I understand it, what they said is on the question of inflation specifically, the risk was to the downside. That is to say, we'd undershoot rather than overshoot. But this, of course, was before we had those two seats go to Democrats in Georgia. Do you think it's a different world for the Fed today than it was just two days ago? Well, so a lot has happened since these Fed minutes, even just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I, I actually don't think that we're in a different world, but I do think that the markets seem to be expecting that we are and that that might be a risk. So I mentioned the 10-year yield was up, um, particularly off of the back of yesterday's Georgia Senate results. And that's on the basis that we'll probably get some kind of stimulus out of this government with, with the Democrats in control of the Senate. And, and that's probably right, but it is worth considering that might not be a linear process. It will require absolute unity amongst the Democrats in the House and the Senate to get significant fiscal measures passed. And so I think we might see wobbles along in the process. Um, these minutes also happened before there was a new variant, a new contagious variant of uh, COVID-19, which we've seen ripping through Southeast England. And so I do think that, you know, the Fed said that they were optimistic that a widely distributed vaccine would really lead to a rebound and that could feed into inflation. But actually with this new variant, I think there's a risk there. And of course, our vaccine rollout has been pretty sclerotic. Hopefully we'll get better at that. Um, but right now it's not looking great for a massive rebound because it's not looking like we're getting vaccines in arms quickly enough. And then finally, it's worth pointing out that we've, we've run an experiment where we've had massive amounts of stimulus before recently in 2018. And if we learned one thing from the Trump administration, it's that you can go ahead and provide significant stimulus when the economy is running pretty hot, it's really ticking along and not generate significant inflation. So I, I really question, even if we got the stimulus the markets are hoping for, I question whether we're going to generate a lot of inflation with that, a lot of sustained inflation with that when the economy is still in a hole. Uh, the Fed has made no secret the fact that they really are concerned about jobs. That's part of their mandate. They also have talked about maybe income inequality, wealth inequality. Is there anything they can do at this point beyond what they've done to improve that situation? Yeah, so as someone who's looking a lot at income and wealth inequality, I wish I could say that the Fed could do anything about it. They're clearly aware that, that they've contributed to it um, by you know, resulting in a, in a bull market and most asset holders are, are wealthy. Um, but unfortunately, other than kind of running the economy hot, letting inflation come down, trying to pull in workers, marginal workers from the sidelines, there's really not a whole lot that the Fed can do about it. That's much more up to fiscal authorities. And that's partly why Jay Powell has been pretty outspoken. And he's not the only central bank chair to, to be outspoken about how fiscal authorities really need to step in and do their job. Megan, when you talk about helping individuals, as you know, Larry Summers got a lot of t attention by saying $2,000 a person is not the way to go. The fact, a lot of people will just save that money. They can't spend it effectively. We need to target it other ways, such as state and local assistance. Is he right? Yeah, so Larry's not the only one saying that, you know, there's a better allocation of that money. Olivier Blanchard came out and said the same and also got a lot of flack for it. I think that is right, though, that dispersing checks, you know, they, they say when you're coming up with the ideal fiscal policy, it needs to be targeted, timely, and temporary. Um, dispersing $2,000 checks isn't particularly targeted, and so I do think things like uh, allocating money to local um, 
officials who are on the front lines and can go ahead and figure out how to plow that into education versus vaccine distribution um, and local services is, is probably a more effective way of supporting communities. That was Megan Green of Harvard's Kennedy School. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to end the week as we do every week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. He is, of course, former Treasury Secretary. Larry, welcome back. Let's start with the end of the week, if we can, with the jobs numbers. We lost 140,000 jobs, although last month's numbers were revised up somewhat. People thought that it might be bad. The markets actually seem to think maybe this makes stimulus more likely. Were you surprised by the numbers? And what do they tell us, if anything, about the economy? I wasn't amazed by the numbers. I think they tell us that we need to get COVID in the rearview mirror. I think they tell us that there's a limit to what kind of recovery we can have when uh, people are fearful of uh, going outside and getting more fearful. And so I think the number one message from this statistic is the importance of doing vaccinating better than we did testing. And it doesn't look like so far we're doing a very good job of that. That's got to be priority one, um, priority two, and priority three for the new administration. And how much of that, Larry, will require some very targeted stimulus? Because one of the things that we hear from a lot of people is small business is, is what it's all about, particularly when it comes to job creation. And obviously, a lot of those small businesses are in things like retail and particularly leisure and restaurants, things like that. Look, uh, David, it doesn't really matter unless people can go to the store and unless they can go uh, to uh, the restaurant. I think we've done okay with the PPP. I'm more worried about the mass layoffs that have taken place in state and local governments. And I'm more worried about the fear that's keeping people uh, indoors that's keeping people unable to go out and engage in the kind of spending they want to. And I think the longer we have this and the longer we respond just by throwing money, the more complicated problem we're going to have of a huge pent-up demand whenever we start to uh, make some progress. So I'm very focused right now less on the macroeconomics than on the 
having effective public health uh, strategies. And in all honesty, I don't think the only culprit uh, has been the politics of the Trump administration as terrible as uh, it has been. I think our medical establishment has not planned in the way it should have for a satisfactory uh, vaccine uh, rollout. And I sure hope uh, that is going to change. Uh, in a way, David, I link uh, two events. Uh, I link the failure to protect the capital and the failure to be able to organize the use of all the vaccines that are being delivered. There's a basic question of public sector competence that I think is a profound challenge for the new administration. And I think that decades of running against government, of venerating what the private sector can do and suggesting that government's just incompetent, that whole ethos has, I think, uh, proven to be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy to terrible consequence for everybody. And so I hope that the new administration is going to put enormous emphasis on effective public management, because I think it's implementation of what we all agree on more than its grand new schemes that is... Uh, necessary. There's a history of this. It goes back to the fact that they didn't get the computers working uh, right uh, for Obamacare. It goes to the fact that we're having people with incomes over $10 million who don't pay taxes, who the IRS doesn't even uh, try uh, to find. It goes to uh, the lead in the water uh, in, uh, in Flint. And I hope that the business community is going to start recognizing the need for effective, competent government rather than just excoriating uh, government at every turn. Larry, I think everyone can get behind a, a real urge for more competent government. But at what level? I mean, we'd like a competent at all levels, but particularly take the vaccine, for example. We have something of a raging debate right now between Governor Cuomo on the one hand and the mayor of New York City, Mr. de Blasio, about exactly who's setting out the rules, because de Blasio is saying, wait a second, you've got your rules so strict that it means we can't get everybody vaccinated. You should loosen them up some. Who should be calling the shots as a matter of competence? Where should the decision making be? I think that's a hard thing to judge. In general, I think we need to be putting more responsibility on uh, the federal government in uh, some of these areas. And I think that having things be invented and reinvented 50 times is often problematic. I think with respect to vaccines, we need to focus on getting as many people vaccinated as possible. And I think by designing optimal algorithms, according to philosophers and epidemiologists, we have probably made a sacrifice in terms of effectiveness. And I put more emphasis on getting as many jabs into arms uh, as possible. I also don't think we've done the research in the right way 
done the planning in the right way with respect to the issue of one versus two vaccines. And I hope uh, when this is over, there'll be a investigation, not just of all the political terrible stuff Trump has done, but also of some of the thinking and decision-making in the medical community. I cannot understand why we did not do more testing and studying that would have enabled us to be making more intelligent judgments right now about first time versus second time uh, vaccinations as the optimal use for controlling the public health problem. I can't understand why we're holding large inventories to give people second doses when they're people whose lives could be saved uh, today. Even if we can't postpone the second doses, we surely can rely on production several weeks from now as the basis for the second dose and use all the doses that we have uh, today. I don't think this is a pretty picture um, at all. And I think among those who are going to have to do a lot of rethinking are the health and the public health profession. And I would suggests that we've had private health norms in a problem that requires public health solutions. As you refer to, we had just a a stunning, harrowing event this week with that attack, assault on the Capitol, really an an attempted armed insurrection. It is no less than that. How might that affect uh, what President Biden, when he is president, can get accomplished in the Congress, particularly when you add the fact we also had, by the way, this week, two seats from this in the Senate go to Democrats from Georgia. So it means that he has an effective, if narrow, majority. You know, the transition from inconceivable to inevitable can be very rapid in Washington. The combination of three things, the Georgia Senate victories that give the Democrats effective, if narrow, control of the Senate, the Actions that have discredited total opposition to Joe Biden. And let's give credit where credit is due. Uh, The president-elect has been pitch perfect over the last week in everything he said and has done. All of that means that it is going to be much, much more difficult to go into reflex opposition to a set of policies that come from the moderate center. And there's a big set of policies, whether it's infrastructure investment, whether it's strengthening uh, education, whether it's making investments in technology that enable us to compete with uh, China, the chances that we can really build back better, those chances have gone uh, way up. I still think there's a prospect that we're gonna fix things and get things together. And a couple months from now, the vaccination process is gonna be back on track. And with it, the economy is really gonna be taking off. And if Joe Biden has that momentum, the Republicans have a desire to show that frankly, they're not crazy. And the best way to demonstrate that is going to be for their moderates to cooperate, I think we can see more progress and there's a larger window than I would have thought plausible uh, a month ago. 
Now, that's no certainty, and it could easily not happen, but the prospect of more um, has to be much more there than anybody thought likely a month ago. Okay, let's wrap up with a quick round of a summer says, and let's start really where you just laid off. The first question is, it looks like there's likely to be more stimulus. What's the right way to do that and the wrong way to do that? More health, more state and local government, getting started on infrastructure, not just sending people uh, checks when disposable income is running already very high. Number two, infrastructure. You've mentioned it more than once. What are the chances that we'll get a really substantial infrastructure package within the next six months? 50-50 or a little better than that, or a little better than that. And that's a much higher number than I would have given a few months ago. Okay, thank you so much to Larry Summers, our special contributor of Harvard University. Always great to wrap up the week with Larry. Thanks, David. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.